So our question is, um, did Adam and Eve understand the concept of evil prior to eating the fruit? Otherwise, how would they even understand the gravity of sin and all of the consequences that came afterward? To us, it seemed a little puzzling that sin could be such a severe punishment if they didn't fully understand that yet. That's a great question and a bit of a doozy, shall we say. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Let's do a quick recap to start this all off, shall we? If you ask Christians about the creation story, most Christians will respond something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in this earth, God created a garden that was without blemish, without sin. Animals didn't eat each other. Everything was perfect. And then God introduced humankind to this garden. And once God introduced humankind, God said to the first couple, Adam and Eve, whatever you do, you can eat from any tree, just not the one tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so God apparently turns God's back for just a minute and wouldn't you know it, Adam and Eve go to that tree and they eat from the one tree that is forbidden in the entire garden. Now, this is considered by many Christians to be the first sin, and this first sin carried some severe punishment with it. First of all, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, Christians will say, and then all of the sins the world has known since then have been a result of Adam and Eve choosing to eat from this tree. Devastation, destruction, Hurricanes, floods, assault, lying, stealing, all of those sins came from this decision. And while this may sound like a bad story or a story that ends in tragedy, Christians will say, well, the story is not over yet because God had a plan to redeem humanity. God sent God's one and only son, Jesus of Nazareth, to die on a cross and paper over the sin of Adam and Eve so that way, when God says, you know what, I'm going to try to make a sequel earth with a brand new garden, I can take those who have accepted my son as their Lord and Savior to come back into this garden so that they can live the way that Adam and Eve once lived before they ate from the fruit. That's how most Christians know the story of creation, the story of Adam and Eve, and the story of the first sin. But then people like Laurel and Christian come along. They look at this story and they say, this seems like a pretty harsh punishment for eating a piece of fruit. And this is a question that not only two people in this congregation have, but lots of people in this congregation have. Not only that, but Laurel and Christian took it one step further by saying, well, look, if Adam and Eve truly understood the consequences of this action, there's no way they would have taken the fruit, right? If you understood the consequences of that action, I believe in you enough to believe that you would not take the fruit if you knew that, right? So if that's the case, Laurel and Christian ask, who's really at fault if they did not understand these consequences? And the answer is, well, it's kind of God's fault. And as Christians, whenever we say it's God's fault, we get real nervous, don't we? We start to freak out because we're like, well, that clearly can't be theologically right. These are great questions to ask. All of these questions are necessary to ask. But there is an undercurrent and a tone and a belief structure behind each of these questions that were asked on the stage just a moment ago. All of these questions begin with the assumption and acceptance of the doctrine of original sin. 
This is what theologians and church historians refer to as a doctrine that is over 1,500 years old. And I will summarize the doctrine of original sin in two parts. The first part is this. This is the belief that all sin, all evil, all suffering entered the world through Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden. That's where all of it came from, devastation, destruction, hurricanes, floods. It all came because they ate from the fruit. The consequences of this are, additionally, every human being inherited the fallen nature of Adam and Eve, which means that all of us need a savior. Now, if you've been paying attention, you could say, wow, that's an interesting doctrine. And I will tell you, when I was younger, I said, well, if that's what we believe, then great. But a much better response is to ask a question. Where did the doctrine of original sin come from? Where did it show up from? And by asking this as your pastor, I transform from your pastor into weird Barbie. <laughs> and it's here that I hold out the Birkenstock and the heel, right? And if you haven't seen this movie yet, congratulations, you're one of the few left, my friend. <laughs> but here is this story where there is this desire to return to what is comfortable when something brand new is presented to stereotypical Barbie, right? And you think about how the church reacts to questions like this. Look, I'm sure the doctrine of original sin is clearly laid out in the Bible. You can choose to believe that because it must be obvious because so many Christians believe this doctrine. But then on the other hand, the Birkenstock is asking us, yeah, but where did this doctrine actually come from? And we have this idea that we can ultimately choose one of these two. And the church tries to push us this way sometimes, and other times the church tries to push us this way. But what the movie got absolutely right is that you never get to choose the Birkenstocks. You end up just wake up one morning, and all of a sudden, all of the shoes in your closet that you thought were heels were Birkenstocks. <laughs> it's the same way with deconstruction, right? You never get to choose deconstruction. You're not like, oh, I need to put in some time on my deconstruction. You never get to choose it. You just wake up one morning and all of a sudden, all of the beliefs that felt rock solid with certainty are now teetering with shaky foundations, right? And so you look at this choice and you realize that this one isn't really much of a choice over here because we now need to talk about where this came from. And I will tell you, once you see this, you probably cannot unsee it. So let's go back about 2,000 years ago to a time shortly after the death and resurrection of Christ. There was a man setting up churches around the Mediterranean. His name was Paul the Apostle. And he sat down one day, what we think was in Corinth, to write a letter to a church in Rome. And he wanted to talk about the significance of Christ's love, Christ's life, Christ's death and resurrection. In this, he started talking about law and sin and grace and what it all meant. And in Romans 5, he says these words, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Paul loves long sentences. He goes on to say, Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even for those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Now, let me just summarize this for you there is this question as to how it is that we know that we sin. And Paul said, well, we have religious rules that tell us when we have fallen short of the glory of God, when we have committed sins. So then the next question is, what about the people who lived before there were rules, like Adam? And he said, guess what? Adam wasn't perfect either. Everyone has at some point lived an imperfect life. Now, I had in my head for most of my life that Paul said this and everyone agreed with him. That's not the case. James, the brother of Jesus, 
often disagreed with Paul. Peter, the most famous apostle, often disagreed with Paul. But this is what Paul felt. Everyone lives an imperfect life. And so he wrote these words around 30 to 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Now let's fast forward 100 years in church history and arrive at a man named Origen of Alexandria. This is a theologian who is deeply influential from the early church that still has shaped some doctrines that we know today. He lived in Alexandria, which is a modern-day Egypt, and he wrote about sin and how we interact with it and where it comes from. He wrote these words. He's not a biologist. Everyone who enters the world may be said to be affected by a kind of contamination, by the very fact that humanity is placed in its mother's womb and that it takes the material of its body from the source of the father's seed and may be said to be contaminated in respect of both father and mother. Thus, everyone is polluted in father and mother. Only Jesus, my Lord, was born without stain because of his immaculate conception. It doesn't take a lot of rocket science to figure out that Origen's stance on sex is, sex is the worst. This is how you know you've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I may let my personal biases get in the way here, but anytime a theologian comes to the conclusion sex is the worst, I tend to disagree with them. Now, this was influential because this is what the way people were going, and this is what they started talking about, how we were dirty before God's eyes. And all of a sudden, this came to a head with an unknown theologian. This theologian has only been quoted in one place. I'll talk about where it was quoted in just a minute. But this name that scholars give this theologian today is a name, Ambrosiaster. Let me hear you say Ambrosiaster this morning. Yeah, so Ambrosiaster, at this point, they have a Bible. It's brand new. It's the New Testament. And it's here that he reads Paul's words in Romans 5.12. And he looks at this word right here, which English Bibles say is because. And Ambrosiaster read because, but he was translating from the Greek to the Latin. And he made a mistake. He accidentally translated because to in whom. And he implied that the in whom refers to Adam and the fact that just by the fact that you are Adam's descendant, you all of a sudden have sinned. You see, before when it just said because, it said, well, everyone at some point has made a mistake. Everyone's made a sin. And then he says here, oh, no, no, everybody is automatically sinners from the time they are conceived. So Ambrosiaster wrote this right here. He said, so it is clear that all have sinned in Adam collectively, as it were. Adam was himself corrupted by sin, and all that were born, therefore, all born under sin. From him, therefore, all are sinners, because we are all produced from him. And while it would be insignificant, what happened was there was a theologian who loved Ambrosiaster's work. His name was St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the most famous early theologians. Hippo is in modern-day Algeria, and he quoted Ambrosiaster as he created the doctrine of original sin. The earliest reference we have to it is found right here in 415 when he wrote, Human nature was certainly originally created blameless and without any fault, but the human nature by which each one of us is now born of Adam requires a physician because it is not healthy. All the good things in our humanity, which has by its conception, life, sense, and mind, it has from God its creator and maker. But the weakness, which darkens and disables these good natural qualities as a result of which that nature needs enlightenment and healing, did not come from the blameless maker, but from original sin. For this reason, our guilty nature is liable to a just penalty. 
And in this paper, he quotes Ambrosi Astor's mistranslation of Romans 5. Now, Augustine writes this. It doesn't become church doctrine right away. And as you can imagine, there were some people who pushed back on this. Namely, a theologian named Pelagius, who lived in the 4th century, he read Augustine's work and was furious. He said, this doesn't sound like God at all to me. He wrote these words in response to Augustine. We are not born in our full development, but with a capacity for good and evil. We are begotten without virtue as much as without fault. And before the activity of the individual will, there is nothing in humans other than what God has placed in them. In other words, Pelagius looks at a baby and says, I see the work of God. Augustine looks at a baby and says, I see the devil. And this was known in church history as the Pelagian Controversy. And it was brought to an end in 418 CE at the Council of Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia. And they made eight points at this council. They had a bunch of men sit in this room. They said, this is what the church believes. And these are the words from that council. If anyone says that no original sin is derived from Adam to be washed away by the baptismal formula, then let him be condemned. And from that moment forward, original sin was official church doctrine. Now, I point this out from Paul to Origen to Ambrosiaster to Augustine to Pelagius to the Council of Carthage because you have to understand where all of this came from. The church adopted the doctrine of original sin largely because of the mistranslation of just one word. Now, it's possible the church would have gotten there without that mistranslation. In fact, I would even say it most likely would. But you can trace a direct line to the mistranslation of one word, and this whole theology was born in which all sin arrived from Adam and Eve, and it has been passed down genetically to every human being. I point all this out because the doctrine of original sin has a messy origin. It's not like a clean thing where all of a sudden people said, well, clearly we can all agree that Genesis says the same thing. And while we look at this and it feels messy, the fact is, the closer you look at this doctrine, the messier it gets. If you go back to Genesis, you've heard this before if you've been to Paradox before, but if not, this may come as a bit of a shock. The book of Genesis starts not with one creation story, but two creation stories. The first one is Genesis 1. The second is Genesis 2 and 3. There's lots of differences between these two, but I want to share with you what just three of them, just so you can see how different they are. In Genesis 1, God creates trees and animals before all humans. In Genesis 2 and 3, God creates one man before all trees and animals. Then God creates a single woman at the end of creation in Genesis 2 and 3. But in Genesis 1, it's a very different story. You see, on the sixth day, God creates multitudes of people, lots of people at the same time. And they're of all different genders. And they all are there. And God says to them one commandment. He's like, I have one rule for you. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, the author of Genesis 1 had a theology that said, sex is the best. Very different than origin. And so that's what God says. Just get out there. Have a great time. This world is your gift. Then in Genesis 2-3, we hear a different story where the two humans rebel against God, causing them there to be separation between God and humankind. But what most Christians don't know is that in Genesis 1, there is no fall of humankind. 
There's never a point where humans rebel against God. God just says, here's the world, go out and do it. And people are like, but there's evil here. He's like, I know, it's complicated, figure it out. There is no fall of humankind in the first creation story. Instead, the world is as God wants it to be. Now, that raises question about the problem of evil, and we get all of that. This is why somebody else read this story and said, I think there's a different creation story. And we have two different creation stories, one of which never even mentions Adam and Eve. And while that may sound messy, it gets even messier the closer you look at it. Because in the ancient Hebrew, we have a word for sin. It's called hata. Let me hear you say hata this morning. Hata is the Hebrew word for sin. And it's not mentioned at all in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. That seems like a big omission when we're talking about original sin, the first sin. God doesn't even call Adam and Eve's action a sin, which is mind-blowing to me. Because here we're talking about this doctrine that is so, like, so well-known by so many Christians, and there's this idea that there was one sin back here that started all the sins. But the authors of Genesis are like, yeah, we're not going to call that a sin. And if you don't believe me, let's talk to our friends who have had this story a lot longer than we have, the Jewish folks, right? If you speak to rabbis about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, tell me about original sin, they'll probably respond similar to Rabbi Simon, who once said the concept of original sin just does not exist in Judaism. From the Jewish point of view, the world did not become an evil place after Adam and Eve took the fruit. Instead, it's still a garden. It always was a garden. However, the divine is now concealed in the garden, whereas once upon a time, the divine was revealed. We can acknowledge that there is evil in the world, but we can never acknowledge that evil is more powerful than good. Never. And he says the focus in Judaism is on the flowers, not on the weeds. This is not a, well, someone who's off on an offshoot of Judaism. This is Orthodox Jewish belief. But it gets even messier the closer you look at it. Because there's one more thing that when you look at this, you say, how come I was never told this growing up? And when you hear that God understands that Adam and Eve have taken the fruit in Genesis 3, God finds them and is disappointed, but not for the reasons you would expect. God says out loud upon seeing them taking the fruit, now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, God looks at mankind and says, oh, they know good and evil. They're getting close to being God-like themselves. The only way I can prevent this because I'm an insecure God is to make sure that they don't live forever. And if this sounds like the God that you knew before this sermon, I will tell you I would be a bit surprised because this is an insecure and jealous God. And so we stand up here with these two different shoes, these two different paths, and you start to hear this information either for the first time or you're familiar with it if you love to study this stuff. But what we have to talk about is the way that religion inspires you or helps you in the direction you go when you receive new information like this. I have found that unhealthy religion will try to convince you that the Birkenstocks you are wearing are actually heels. They'll say, look at your feet, and you'll see Birkenstocks and say, they're heels. And they'll try to get you to do that over and over again. This is a hallmark of unhealthy religion. But healthy religion 
will encourage you to embrace the unknown mystery of God whenever you encounter something that is true. Healthy religion will inspire you to respond to great, with grace to new information. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about my story and this question in particular. If we go back to when I was a kid, I grew up in the church. I used to bring American flags into the church because that's what I did back then. Now, I remember hearing about the story of Adam and Eve through an animated series called Superbook. Uh, if you've seen the animated series called Superbook now, it's way more advanced than it was back then. It was an anime. It was wonderful. But I remember watching it, and that's the first time I remember hearing that story. And from the first moment I heard that story, I 100% believed it. So much so that I was teaching a children's story when I was in high school, and I remember this very vividly when I was teaching this children's story. I'm here teaching them about the story of Adam and Eve. And this all culminated in August of 2004 when this guy showed up on the scene with his jorts and athletic socks there, <laughs> setting fashion trends all around. And I remember this moment because... This guy right here 100% believed in the literal and historical story of Adam and Eve and the doctrine of original sin. I can remember feeling that confident about it in August of 2004, which raises the question, what happened in September of 2004? Well, I went to school at a place called Montana State University. I made friends like Peter in the yellow and Tyler in the blue, and Tyler's an atheist. If you've been here before, you've heard me talk about him. And when I met him and he told me he was an atheist, I got a little nervous because the church told me a warning. They said, if you become friends with an atheist, they will make you question everything you believe. Nothing has been more true that the church has told me <laughs> than these words right here. He had some problems with the fact that I said that God was good and all-powerful and there's all this suffering in the world. And while it put me on the defensive, I would always go back when I was talking to him about Adam and Eve and how we deserved all the suffering because our ancestors sinned long ago. Well, this culminated three years later when I was studying abroad with Montana State. I was sitting with my professor who had grown up in the church but had walked away. And my professor started to talk to me about religion, which he's not supposed to do, but he had had a few at that point, And he's like, ah, screw it, we're doing it. <laughs> So he knew that I was the most religious person in the class, and he looked at me from across the table, and he said, how is it fair that two people mess up and all of us have to suffer because of it? And I remember defending it out loud to him while on the inside thinking, this sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and this is the first time I remember questioning the doctrine of original sin. It's a very clear memory in my head. Co coincidentally, or not coincidentally, I should say, this is also the last time I remember defending the doctrine of original sin. Because I just went in this place where I was like, I don't know. And when I had that answer, I don't know, I said, I want to be the person who knows. So I enrolled at seminary at a place called La Sierra University. And while I was there, the first class I took was in Hebrew Bible studies. I sat down and I was like, time to get some answers. And the professor walked in. He started talking about the Bible two things became very apparent very quickly. He knew more about the Bible than any person I'd ever met, and he didn't believe a word of it. He didn't believe any of the stories were historically true or literal, and he showed us how that didn't matter time and time again. He introduced us to the two contradicting creation stories, and then he talked to us about how the Bible is written with perception in mind. In other words, 
There isn't somebody sitting there as Adam and Eve are taking the apple and writing down the story of Genesis. Instead, there's somebody much later who's looking back and looking at their life and realizing that something doesn't quite add up. In other words, at some point, a writer attempted to explain how the perfect God created an imperfect world. And that's how they started coming up with stories like Adam and Eve, and they'd tell them orally first, and then eventually, if those stories stuck, they would start to write them down. There was one more step in this journey that was really important. In March of 2015, I went to a conference with Father Richard Rohr, and we asked questions of him this whole conference. It was two days long. And we would ask him about questions about original sin or sacrificial atonement theory. And his response was almost always the same. He would look at us and say, where did that doctrine come from? In other words, Richard Rohr is my weird Barbie. (laughs) And when he says, where did that doctrine come from? I was like, I don't know. And then you start to look into like where the doctrine of original sin came from. And you're like, this isn't as rock solid as I was told. And from Tyler to Istanbul to La Sierra to Richard Rohr, I know this for sure. I can't remember the exact moment, but I know this for sure. By the end of 2015, I had completely let go of the story of Adam and Eve and my belief I had left in the doctrine of original sin. I had let it go. I was like, doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe it. I'm still a pastor, but I'm really not sure what to do with this. This was about eight years ago now, right? And I want to tell you what I have found in the eight years since. Letting go of belief is sacred. It's so sacred, in fact, that I would say that letting go of belief is just as sacred as believing. To explain what I mean by this, I want to show how most people think of belief. They often think of it as a graph like this. Just me? Okay, never mind. Some people think of belief as a graph like this, right? The percentage of you that believes and your life going this way. In other words, you're walking along, minding your own business, you got some belief, and then bam, You meet Jesus somewhere, and you're like, for the rest of my life, I believe who Jesus is, and my job is to get people up here with me on my level. That's how we often think of belief. It's a plateau once you assent to the belief that's been given to you. I have found that belief is much more like this. Now, this is a bit of a misrepresentation because there is direction to it, but it is also cyclical in nature, which means that I believe about belief something of a paradox, right? And when you talk about what this means to me, I found that belief always begins with trust. You start to trust something, you see if it works, it works out, you trust it a little bit more. You do that as long as you can until it stops working. And that begins the phase of doubt. You start to let go of things. You start to say, maybe God isn't going to answer all my prayers. Maybe this original sin doesn't justify some of the worst sins I've seen on this planet. And once you reach rock bottom and say, I'm done, I can't believe that anymore, that's the moment when you open yourself up to something else. Now, that doesn't happen right away all the time, but it happens sometimes. Because once you have let go of a belief, which I believe is a sacred process, you open yourself to hope. And this is important because hope always leads back to trust because you're saying to yourself, I've been burned before, but I'm, wor- I'm going to give it one more shot. Now, some fancy theological terms that people use are construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. If that's your cup of tea, go for it. But I have found it's much more helpful to name the verbs 
because it reminds us this is all action. Trust, doubt, hope. Trust, doubt, hope. This is the pattern of belief I have found to be true in the human experience. I tell you this because if I think about trust, I trusted the doctrine of original sin. Like, I was all in on it, right? And then went to Turkey and started to doubt the doctrine of original sin. And now it's 2023. This is the last picture on my phone of me. Today, I can't believe I'm going to say this in front of you, but my friends, I believe in the original sin doctrine once again. Let me correct myself. I believe in a reconstructed version of the original sin doctrine. And this is where paradox is a very unique church because most people will either lead you through construction or deconstruction, but very few churches are willing to start doing the reconstruction. A lot of churches want to do the trust, only trust, don't mention doubt, but they skip over the hope. So let me share with you how I've returned back to this doctrine that I once completely let go of and what it means to me today. Now, it's important to know that there are portions of this doctrine I love and portions I detest. Let's start with what I detest. Any belief that someone is inherently bad, evil, and or ignorant because they were simply born needs to be discarded immediately, period. This idea that a human being is born one way and that makes them an enemy or evil or less than has to go. Also, sex is great. We're just going to clarify that in case anyone's confused from the original sin doctrine, okay? But we have to get back to this idea that, you know what? We can talk about original sin without condemning humanity for just being human. Now, the second part is we have inherited many blessings from our ancestors, right? Think about all the things you've inherited from your ancestors. I'm going to go with the polio vaccine. Brilliant. Thank you, ancestors. Y'all are great. I read stories about leprosy. I'm not worried about leprosy. Why? Because my ancestors gave me this gift, right? So there is this ancestor, there's this line, there's my family who has worked to give me stuff, and let me tell you, I have received many blessings from my ancestors. However, we have also inherited sins from our ancestors, right? Think about climate change. You, love it, you like the car that you drove? You like the ability to move from one place to the other? What a gift from our ancestors. Comes with some problems. We've got to be aware of this because this is a problem or a dark side from the blessing that was given to us. Now, I have learned that we must learn to harbor gratitude toward these inherited blessings, but we must also work to make our inherited sins right. Let me give you an example. I have spoken with people, with Christians, and I'm going to call out my own tribe for a minute. I've spoken with white Christians who say they believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of original sin. You then talk to them about the history of America, and they say something along the lines of, well, I didn't own slaves, to which I would say no one said that you did. However, there is this whole bias and racial, racist structure that we have to pay attention to because while we have inherited blessings from our nation's history, we have also inherited sins from the nation's history. And I have found that the people who only want to talk about the blessings are boring to hang out with. I found the people that only want to talk about the sins of the nation are draining to hang out with. We have to live in the tension and acknowledgement that we have both received and also are willing to do work going forward. 
And that tension is something that is absent. And I have to tell you, the reason I am saying in front of all of you again that I'm starting to believe more and more in original sin is because our culture is becoming more and more individualized. And if we can get together and think things through in a way that acknowledges both the blessings and the sins of our past, then maybe we can find a better way forward together. Now, when we look at what this means, I have had people who think that making things right from the past is just to talk about how bad someone is. I have found that making these inherited sins right does not mean we blame another. Making these inherited sins right does not mean we wallow in despair. Rather, making these inherited sins right is like gardening. Every action is done with hope that something beautiful will unfold. This is what we are trying to do because it acknowledges that, yes, things aren't perfect. There's a lot to do, but let's make sure we don't focus on one or the other too much because we will either end up with despair or ignorance in either hand. My friends, we live in a big, beautiful world that is a gift given to us by God. And when I think about what it means to be someone with healthy spirituality, for me, more than anything else, it's a person who believes that tomorrow can be better than today. And it's someone who also enjoys the beauty of today. This is a person of hope. And my wish for all of us this morning is that we may become people of great hope as we both appreciate our inherited blessings and also work to make our inherited sins right. Amen. Thank you.